The following podcast contains explicit materials. It's Wednesday, November 15th, 2017. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pasca. You know, I usually open the show, this here show, the one you're listening to, with a quip, uh, an observation, maybe something about Steve Mnuchin's wife wearing elbow-length leather gloves to visit the money with her husband. Honey, can we visit the money? She's dressed like a dollar dominatrix. She poses with pursed lips, holding up a sheet of money. Darling, please, let us visit the money again. Yes, dear. Wait. Wait, was that a Steve Mnuchin impression? Or was that the fake Washington Post reporter who Alabama voters found on their voicemail? Yeah, hello? It's Bernie Leibowitz of the Washington Post. We met at your barbecue, you know, the one where you served all the trafe. I've got $3,000 for anyone who could do a mitzvah and say Roy Moore diddled their puppet. 5000 if it was your tuchus. I'm not going to make those jokes. Those jokes have been made, made by better people than me. It's fun to tell, but you've heard them. What I'm going to do is what so many podcasts do, podcasts that appear higher rated on the Apple podcast charts than mine. Just open up by plugging all the live shows. I don't know how this forum decided that that was the best way to grab listeners' attention, and far be it from me to tell you more successful podcasts don't open the show with a series of live dates. But, you know, on November 28th, I'll be playing Washington, D.C. So many guests coming to the Hamilton Theater. Benjamin Wittes, Chris Malamphy, Alexandra Petri. Go to Slate.com. You know what? I can't do it. I just, I feel bad when you open with the business and you do the slow roll into the show. Yesterday's show was 39 minutes. It was a great show, but I've got to respect your time. I can't, you know, let's engage in pre-show banter with the other cast members. Right, Mary? Right. I mean, what was it you were telling me about uh, what the Times is covering and what they're not covering? What was that thing? The vaquitas are dying. What? I don't know what that means. The vaquitas are the panda of the ocean. Oh, okay. That's They're the panda of the sea. They're a porpoise. Well, pandas are dying, so I guess that would make sense. They're the pandas of the ocean. Get the panda out of your head. I can't. I'm focused on the panda. The wet, oceany pandas. Tell me about these vaquitas. Well, it starts with this fish called the totoaba, which has a bladder that is considered a delicacy in some parts of the world. Poachers call it aquatic cocaine because it can net such high prices. Oh. So these fishermen will lay nets to catch the totoaba, yeah. ultimately for these bladders. Yeah. And the vaquitas are dying in these nets. They can't like just catch the fish and do operations and then le- uh, release the fish into the ocean and leave the vaquitas alone. Maybe someone hasn't thought of that. That's how the pandas were saved. So anyway, Mary, the reason that we're doing this uh, pre-show banter, like so many shows do, is did you write a song about it? I may have written a song about it. Okay, so at least we could get some content as I plug my live show. Uh, Maybe we could do this where we'll put one in one ear and one in the other. I just feel really guilty about only plugging live shows. So they'll get the content of your Vaquita song. All right, hit it. Bum. The Just Live, Washington, D.C. Perry Bacon Jr. will be there. He writes for 538. Chris Malanfi, host of Slate's Hit Parade. Alexandra Petrie, columnist for the Washington Post. Holly Twyford, actress. And Benjamin Wittes, editor-in-chief of Lawfare. 730 Hamilton Theater, Washington, D.C. Slate.com slash live. On the show today, I spiel about a lawyer who probably shouldn't be a judge. And why that in 
more than one way is spooky. But first, a lawyer for the ACLU. So a real lawyer's lawyer, this guy. And he's going to talk about how you can make a difference. Even if you want to sell a uranium mine to the Russians and have big donations to give. Not that there's anything wrong with that. There really isn't. But this one is pitched more towards the other people in our audience, not the uranium mine owners. Chris Gethard, and I'm very excited to tell you about Beautiful Anonymous, a podcast where I talk to random people on the phone. I tweet out a phone number, thousands of people try to call, you talk to one of them, they stay anonymous, I can't hang up, that's all the rules. I never know what's going to happen. We get serious ones. I've talked with meth dealers on their way to prison. I've talked to people who survived mass shootings. Crazy funny ones. I talked to a guy with a goose laugh, somebody who dresses up as a pirate on the weekends. I never know what's going to happen. It's a great show. Subscribe today, Beautiful Anonymous. When we think about civil rights, I don't know if it's sepia-toned or black and white. I mean, in 1964, there were marches, there was the Civil Rights Act, and then the idea of civil rights has stagnated a little bit, but it doesn't need to have. The ACLU, the American Civil Liberties Union, is driving the idea of civil rights every day, driving it like an engine, an engine of liberty, and that is the name of the new book by David Cole, the National Legal Director of the ACLU, Engines of Liberty, How Citizen Movements Succeed. Hello, David. Thank Thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me, Mike. So the book is told through three distinct movements, and they're interesting. Why don't you tell me which ones they are? So I, I essentially looked at three of what I think are the most successful uh, efforts at constitutional change, at expanding or defending constitutional liberty uh, in trying times in our lifetime. And, and, and so they are, how did marriage equality go from unthinkable, which is what it was- Not even time. brought up. Not, I mean, I, as an adult in my young adulthood- this wouldn't even be a dream that a gay rights activist would uh, utter, to my knowledge. Well, exactly. I yeah. mean, I, you know, I, I start the book uh, uh, talking about uh, Evan Wolfson, who was a gay Harvard law student and wanted to write a paper on arguing for uh, same-sex marriage, a constitutional right to same-sex marriage in the 1980s, who went to all the constitutional law professors at Harvard None of them would supervise it because they thought it was such a crazy idea. He finally got a, a trust in a states professor to you know, do him a favor and, and, and supervise it. He wrote a 144-page paper. He got a B-plus, which I understand is the lowest grade you can get at Harvard Law School. <laughs> um, but yeah, he, once you get in, you don't really yeah, right, need to worry right, about it. Right. But he then went on uh, to continue to fight for this pretty much as a solo you know, advocate for a long time. But how do you go from that to inevitable, which is what marriage equality was when the Supreme Court took up the case in 2015. Right. And then I also talk about gun rights. You know, for a hundred years, the law on the Second Amendment was it doesn't protect an individual right to bear arms. It protects the prerogative of states to have militias to fight against federal oppression, but not individuals to have guns free of state regulation. hundred years. Warren Berger in 1991, a conservative retired Supreme Court justice, said he thought the idea that the Second Amendment protects an individual right to bear arms was one of the greatest frauds perpetrated on the American people by a special interest organization that he'd ever seen. Yet, 2008, the court recognizes it as a constitutional right. And then what caused George Bush in the war on terror to, by the time he left office, retreat on virtually all of his uh, most controversial uh, war on terror measures, torture, rendition, warrantless wiretapping, uh, Guantanamo, and the like. And, and, and so it's really a, a looking at how did 
And the answer is people got together yeah. and organizations. How did they do that? What did they do? What are the strategies? How do you succeed? Okay, so these are three fascinating ones for me. To take them piece by piece, the Patriot Act and George Bush, a lot of the reason about what weakened him was specifically the ACLU. I mean, with the other ones, I'm sure you filed a ton of amicus briefs, but absent the ACLU, we'd have an entirely different America when it comes to the war on terror. So as much as people could do, and the ACLU is made up of people, we also need a major civil rights organization driving that movement, sometimes taking unpopular stances that turn out to be right legally. Well, absolutely. I mean, you know, the the, the message of the book is that people citizens can do a tremendous amount to defend liberty, to advance liberty, but they need to do it by engaging together in civil society groups. It was the NRA that achieved the individual right to bear arms. It was the gay rights groups, including the ACLU, but also including Lambda Legal Defense Fund and uh, Freedom to Marry and GLAAD, uh, Gay and Lesbian Advocates and Defenders, that together strategized and built the campaign on marriage equality, and it was the ACLU and the Center for Constitutional Rights and Human Rights Watch that really strategized on how we push back against Bush in the war on terror. Wouldn't, in a lot of cases, with what the Bush-Cheney administration was doing, the crux of the matter is they were violating the Constitution. It wasn't really that you had to make an argument or convince anyone. They pretty clearly were violating the Constitution. And there are institutions in place, like the ACLU, who will bring this up. The courts still function. And eventually there are rulings that say, yes, what any learned person knew all along is true. This is a violation of the Constitution. Am I, am I oversimplifying it? I think you are. Uh, because here, did any court order... George Bush to release 500 people from Guantanamo? No. That's true. Did any court order George Bush to suspend the CIA's torture program? No. Did any court order him to close the CIA's secret prisons? No. Did any court order him to stop the warrantless wiretapping program? Well, yes, one district court did, but that was overturned on appeal. Mm -hmm. So the, the impetus for the pushback was not from the courts particularly, and even the, the where the courts did rule against the president, that you need to have a hearing at Guantanamo. Yeah. You know, I, I, I feature there um, a man named Michael Ratner, who was really the brainchild behind the Guantanamo litigation. I asked him, what chance did you think you had of succeeding when you filed that first habeas corpus petition on behalf of a Guantanamo prisoner? He said, zero. We thought we had no chance, but we thought it was the right thing to do. And they had no chance. There was a Supreme Court precedent on point from 1952 saying foreigners held as enemies during wartime, or in that case, the aftermath of World War II, have no right to come to federal court and seek habeas corpus. But they didn't just file a suit. They also engaged in a whole campaign of advocacy in a right. variety of different forms. So, and in that context, particularly foreign forums, to get foreign governments to put pressure on the Bush administration to back off. Now, when we go to gay rights, whatever gains were made legally wasn't it the case that society's opinion was changing? It's kind of nice to have an issue. And maybe it wouldn't have changed if it wasn't brought to the courts originally. But there aren't too many issues that we call civil rights issue that have seen such a sea change in just what the regular American thinks about it. And as much as courts are supposed to be blind to that, they're not. Right, exactly. I mean, you know, and, and, but then the question is, well, how did the uh, American attitudes change mm -hmm. so, so, so dramatically? And I think the answer is the work of these organizations, which did not 
uh, focus only on filing litigation. The biggest organization focused on marriage equality, Freedom to Marry, was founded by Evan Wolfson, the guy who wrote the Harvard paper and got his B plus, and it didn't file a single case. It worked on uh, referendum campaigns, on ad campaigns, on changing hearts and minds because they felt that the only way they were ultimately going to prevail in this in this in this issue was to change the hearts and minds of people. And again, that's also a point of the book that for a citizen movement to succeed, you need to find avenues and venues and forums where you can put forth your view and figure out ways to do it effectively. And the most effective way for both marriage groups and the gun groups was to start in those states that were most sympathetic, develop some arguments that work there, take them to the next most sympathetic state, take them to the next most sympathetic state, and build momentum. And at some point, you build enough momentum that you can sort of jump from the state level to the federal level and get a constitutional right. Let's talk about gun rights advocates. I understand why you'd want to include them in the book so you don't have three examples from the left. But point blank, do you think the Second Amendment is a civil right? Yeah, it's a, it, it qualifies as a civil right. Look, whether you agree with the NRA or don't is not so much the question. Are they an effective civil rights, civil liberties organization? Without question. Probably the most effective. It's able to stop laws from getting enacted that would clearly be constitutional, like the universal background check that President Obama sought to enact after uh, Sandy Hook. Uh, And it's able to get laws enacted like stand-your-ground laws that are clearly not constitutionally required but defend their notion of a self-defense right to bear arms. So if you want to be an effective advocate uh, in this system, you have to study the NRA. Mm -hmm. They have 5 million members, 15 million others who think they're members but don't pay their dues. And the NRA (laughs) – you know, the executive director of the NRA said, you know, I would love to have them pay their dues. But what I really want is them to think they're members because that means they respond when we ask them to call their congressman to vote a particular way. And that's power. That's the power of the NRA. It's persuasion. It's, you know, and, and, and they take extreme positions, absolutely. But they do it with a lot of people who agree with them and have been persuaded. From talking to gun rights advocates, what have they done to make their issue so much more salient to their voters than almost any other issue? Uh, We know the polling on gun rights, gun ownership versus gun control, yet the gun control crowd does not feel their issue. It will not be the single issue they vote on like the gun rights people. Uh, feel their issue. So how do you explain the difference in salience? So I I asked that to uh, Kane Robinson, who's a former president of the NRA, and he said, you've got to have the threat. You've got to have the threat to mobilize people. And the threat for the NRA is that liberals will take away their guns. If we don't draw the line, that's where they're going. And in part because liberals are so dismissive of gun owners, Gun owners think, hey, they probably would take away our guns. And so they're, they're, they're willing to act. I see the same thing now in the new members who have come to the ACLU. Now, before President yeah. Trump was elected, we had 400,000 members. Today, we have 1.6 million members. Why did we quadruple our membership in a matter of four months? Because people see Trump as a threat. Recently, some members of the ACLU, though it was a minority, uh, went on the record and said, we don't think that our organization should be defending the rights of right-wing extremists, neo-Nazis to demonstrate. We don't think that that's where we should be putting our efforts. What did you make of that movement? I'm a firm believer 
in the importance of the sort of, in some sense, transcendental importance of protecting First Amendment rights because it is the process by which we persuade each other, by which we develop as a society, by which those who are in the minority uh, persuade others to recognize their rights. And so I think it's critical that we protect rights across the board. We don't give the government the power to choose whose views should be heard and whose views shouldn't, especially when you've got a government like the like the Trump administration. I mean, do we really want them to start being able to say say who gets to speak and who doesn't? So I think the better you know argument is that we should be protecting speech rights and advancing racial justice. But you know there there is a tension there, and 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 there's a you know a healthy debate within the organization about it. I would make clear that the 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 vast number of people within the ACLU who have raised this have not said we should not represent white supremacists or we should change our policy that the, that's the free speech clause affects, yeah. protects everyone. What they have said is we should be more careful about how we make decisions about which cases we take and when and They're how we use our resources. They're kind of making a de facto argument, right? That let's prioritize what we do and if this one goes down the priority list, so be it. Well, yeah, I mean, but 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 I mean, the reality is that you always have to make priorities decisions. Mm-hmm. But for the most part, it's not a, a question of let's abandon the principle uh, that the First Amendment stands for. Maybe it's generational, but don't they see that the ACLU, by defending the Nazis in Skokie, that was one of the great triumphs for the ACLU? Like for years and years, the ACLU could always say, you know what? We'll defend your right to speech. We even defended the Nazis' right to speech. That like solidifies the ACLU message as being absolute and blind to everything except what the Constitution says. Well, I think, yeah, I think it, it, it presents us as being true to our principles. You know, it's e- yeah. it would be easy to protect the First Amendment if you only protected those whose views you agree with. David Cole, National Legal Director of the ACLU, author of Engines of Liberty, How Citizen Movements Succeed. Thanks so much. Thank you. Chris Gethard, and I'm very excited to tell you about Beautiful Anonymous, a podcast where I talk to random people on the phone. I tweet out a phone number, thousands of people try to call, I talk to one of them, they stay anonymous, I can't hang up, that's all the rules. I never know what's going to happen. We get serious ones. I've talked with meth dealers on their way to prison. I've talked to people who survived mass shootings. Crazy funny ones. I talked to a guy with a goose laugh, somebody who dresses up as a pirate on the weekends. I never know what's going to happen. It's a great show. Subscribe today, Beautiful Anonymous. And now the spiel. Have you heard about this guy, Brett Talley? I could say, have you heard about Brett Talley? Donald Trump's pick to be a federal district judge in Alabama, a lifetime appointment. But that elevates him. Brett Talley should just be called this guy. He's some guy. He hasn't tried a case. He's only been practicing law for three years. So it's like picking a lieutenant who's never seen action to sit on the Joint Chiefs of Staff. Now, to be fair to Brett Talley, he does have some relevant experience in areas that are ancillary to the law. He's done political work. His politics aren't my politics. In fact, they seem like awful politics. But you can see how, with a few years seasoning, he could one day become the sort of person who gets raided by the American Bar Association, is minimally qualified, and then a president with some terrible ideas about the direction America should take should nominate him then. But not now. The ABA unanimously called him not qualified. You know, the Obama administration put forth only qualified judges, and the Clinton administration did nominate 
Some judges, 14 out of hundreds of judges that they nominated, where the ABA gave a split decision on, so it wasn't unanimously not qualified, but maybe more not qualified than qualified, sort of a qualified not qualified. But the lawyers now are saying for the first time since I think 2006 that this guy is not qualified. And there's another guy, Leon Graz, who's also not qualified. And this, the ABA's ruling of not qualified, makes them, in the eyes of conservatives, really, really qualified. Writing in the Wall Street Journal, William McGurn goes through the ABA's decision and finds some nits to pick. He's talking about the other judge I mentioned, Leon Grass, who was judged not qualified by the ABA. The panel who interviewed him called him gratuitously rude. That was not enough for Mr. McGurn. How was he rude? Why was he rude? Was it burping kind of rude? It doesn't matter. Those who are favoring Tally, those who are saying that Graz is a fine nominee, aren't really making a counter-argument that they are qualified. They're just saying that they're not not qualified. They're attacking and blasting the ABA. See, the ABA is too liberal to judge the judges. He finds fault, McGurn does, with the ABA's asking of Leon Graz where his children attended school. McGurn raises the possibility that the ABA, in asking that question, is showing an anti-Lutheran bias. Hey, Davey, is it true people don't like Lutherans? Some people are prejudiced, Goliath, like the lawyers in the ABA. I don't know, Davey. McGurn says, just one indication of how politicized the ABA's ratings have become, Democrats and Republicans long ago diverged on the ABA's role in the nominations process. In 2001, George W. Bush halted the practice of giving the ABA first crack at vetting potential nominees. In 2009, Barack Obama revived it, and this year, President Trump halted it again. Politicized, maybe. That shows a degree of that. But is it bipartisan? It seems like being politicized can happen whenever one side unilaterally deviates from norms and accepted best practices. The ABA was invited in by Eisenhower, Republican, used by every Democrat and Republican president since then, until George Bush decided to stop the practice. I mean, this is like saying, just one example of how politicized math has become is that the Bush administration said two plus two was five, then the Obama administration decreed it was four, and now under Trump, it's back to five. Or you know, given Trump, two plus two is turtle. The ABA isn't the end-all be-all in judgment on judges. Their long-standing advice has been helpful over the years. You know, they are experts. If you want to pick the most qualified judges, they seem a fine group to consult with. If your goal is, however, something other than picking the most qualified judges, they are, it turns out, not that much of a help. As for Brett Talley, even if this guy doesn't get a seat on the federal bench, and it appears that he will, for the rest of his life, he can take pride in his award-winning horror writing. A 2014 nominee for the Bram Stoker Prize, Tally is the author of such books as The Void, Limbus Inc., and The Fiddle is the Devil's Instrument and Other Forbidden Knowledge, in which a shadowy cabal renders judgment on the living in an attempt to destroy them by calling them rude and possibly Lutheran. And that's it for today's show. The gist was produced by Pierre BNMA, rated as minimally qualified by the American Highlight Association. Mary Wilson, gist producer, is rated as highly qualified by the American Society of the Deeply Ambiguous. So that's a mixed blessing there. Steve Lichtai, executive producer of Slate Podcasts, rated as a qualified lessee 
but an unqualified lessor. The gist. We were going so hard for an ABA qualification. We grew our hair out, stepped back past the three-point line, used a red, white, and blue ball, and pledged allegiance to the Kentucky Colonels and the Virginia Squires, only to find out, not that ABA. Oomperu, depperu, duperu, and thanks for listening.